0: You're listening to the Tattle Creek Podcast. I'm Alfred Holden, resident essayist at Tattle Creek Magazine. And I've just swapped hats with Conan Tobias, who usually sits in this chair. He wrote the flagship story in the magazine's Summer 2016 edition. And so I'm interviewing him for a change. It's June 26th, 2016. Hi there, Conan. Hi, Alfred. Um... Well, first off, Conan, congratulations on this big project published, um, a great story, an excerpt has appeared in the Globe and Mail, and which I reflected is a very good spot for it because of the topic, a man who was called Canada's greatest cartoonist who worked for newspapers. His name was Loose Goose. Oops, I think that's, well, Conan, how is it you say that? (laughs) It's
1: Lou Scoos. First name is Lou, L-O-U. My last name is scoose
0: S-K-U-C-E. So, first question that occurs is, okay, so if he was Canada's greatest cartoonist, why do we need to be coached to pronounce his name? As I'll have to confess that before I heard of this project, I didn't even know his name. So, who was Lou Scoos? Well, to answer your first question, he was—I don't
1: know how official any of these titles are. He was often billed later in his career as Canada's greatest cartoonist. Um, I think the same reason we forget about anybody eventually. He just, no matter how famous you are, as time as time moves on, uh, we tend to forget about people. I was talking to somebody about this recently, and I think even if you look back at like the silent film era, there were so many gigantic stars of that era, and today you can probably name two or three. I don't know how many people in their twenties know who Fatty Arbuckle is, but he was a pretty big star in his day. So, in answer to your question as to why we don't remember him, it's just probably just time.
0: Well, journalists are probably even more ephemeral, Ephemeral, notwithstanding the, uh, the fact that most of us have rather big egos. But we, we vanish, and our bylines go into the microfilm, or I guess they stay alive a little longer on the Internet. Well, that's well, anyway. a big part of
1: it, too. I mean, what he did was very ephemeral. He worked in newspapers, he worked in advertising, he made a lot of little advertisement blotters or coasters, which... You put your glass on and then throw away. So, uh, yeah, he worked in a business that was
0: ephemeral and a lot of time has passed. So uh, so he was kind of a jack-of-all-trades on the visual sides of, I guess we now use the term imaging, but uh, he did everything from, I guess, from a sort of pretty sober editorial cartooning to, to advertising, like you say, that, that people, I guess, would see everywhere. Um. Given that he kind of vanished, uh, I'm wondering, uh, before we really tell people about him, how is it that you discovered there was this character out there who had done a lot of interesting work?
1: Uh, one of the Greeks Tele- contributors, Patrick Raleigh, one of our poets, uh, called me up or wrote me a line 10 years ago and said that he had this book of drawings he thought I might like to see, and the book was a copy of Corcoran's Wrestling Guide, which was uh, Program for the Queensbury uh, Athletic Club here in Toronto, run by Jack Corcoran. And Lou had drawn uh, all the illustrations in it and just page after page of um, the club's uh, wrestlers. And some of them were in a very fine art style and some were in a really cartoony style. And he was a great letterer. And I just, I was really taken with his art. And uh, I looked him up and saw that there was just a, a little bit on him out there saying that he'd been really famous, uh, but not really much. There wasn't a lot, there wasn't much more than that. And I just thought this guy's really talented. Um, so I wrote up a, r- a really short piece on him in Tyler Creek about 10 years ago, ran some of the pages from that book, and just kind of vowed to get back around to finding out more about him someday. So, how did you
0: go about, as you might put it, peeling back the layers? Everybody now will first go to the internet and find what we find. My own experience has been that it's a million miles wide and about an inch deep. And I'm wondering, sort of, what to, to find this person, what did you have to do, or end up doing?
1: Uh, well, to set the scene a bit, we should say you know, Lou's career. Lou was an early 20th century cartoonist, so his career went from early, early aughts, 1900, up until he died in 1951. So it wasn't easy to find out more about him. Uh, he was famous, but he wasn't wasn't famous in the way like maybe a lot of big American cartoonists of the same time, where there was there were papers somewhere. Or anything like that um, because as we said he was, his work was so ephemeral there was just there wasn't a lot there wasn't much to find in any one spot so I just started looking every place I could possibly think of and calling every person I could think to ask about him and there, there wasn't really one place to go it was just a lot of piecing things together from this library and that archive and that person and, and I pieced it together eventually over time just it was just a lot of a lot more work than it would be for someone who was incredibly
0: famous and is still remembered more and who was archived better. All right, then. So tell us a little bit more about the man. Uh, uh, where did he come from?
1: Uh, he came from Ottawa, or what was then a small area outside of Ottawa, uh, Britannia. Um, which I think is sort of in the the west end of Ottawa now. Small town. His father was a blacksmith, um, he was sort of the village smithy. Uh, uh, who grew up in the small town with his his parents and his brothers. Uh he was um uh, an athlete in his youth. He was a several time over uh paddling champion. He played uh with the original Ottawa Rough Riders rugby team pre-CFL. Uh he played some amateur hockey for a while. This this was all back before uh the the professional sports leagues we noted today took off. And uh, from the sounds of it, he just—he was a guy who uh, his parents encouraged him artistically as well. He was his two big loves seemed to be sports and art, and uh, he seemed to have talent from a very early age, and just kind of ended up following that instead of the sports route.
0: So, what were newspapers doing that would? I, I gather that newspaper cartooning actually goes back a long, long way, like to the 18th century, to when newspapers were sort of nascent. By the late 19th century, what was the cartoonist, and how would a newspaper sort of pick a cartoonist? How would a young guy mm-hmm. go and sell his his, his talent?
1: It could Probably just by being talented. I think it was probably a lot easier then than it is today. You could probably just, back then, you could probably just walk in, show some sketches, and possibly get a job. Uh, you're right, it does go back to the uh, the late 19th century, a little before. I mean, there were always some kind of drawings. From early on, in newspapers, strips hadn't started yet, but there were editorial cartoons, and um, especially before before photographs became common in newspapers, Right, illustration the was a pretty, the halftone was a pretty yeah right. It was
0: always a problem, I'm sure, to liven up the paper. To... Yeah,
1: so so illustrators were actually a much more important part than they are today. Unfortunately, they're kind of sidelined today. But back then, it was a, actually a pretty important position to have at a paper.
0: So I gather that he he. Like many of us, uh, started working and then somebody spotted his his talent. Is that sort of how it went?
1: Yeah, he was kind of drawing here and there. He did. Uh, he became known as an illustrator. His first real job, I think, was on a small Ottawa paper called uh, The Dipper, which was a, a weekly. Um, he got uh, seen by one of the other Ottawa papers, and they, they kind of snapped him up as a uh, as a political illustrator. There, he started to uh, drew there for a few years. Uh, the Ottawa Journal. Uh, which was sort of the competitor to the Citizen at the time, uh, and then uh, eventually he got he got snapped up by the, by the paper that where he made his name, uh, the the old uh, tr- the Toronto Sunday World, which was the Sunday edition of the Toronto World, and that was a pretty revolutionary paper at the time. It was sort of the American model weekend paper um, that didn't really exist in Canada at that time. Doesn't really exist that much now, um, but it was. Uh, yeah, he sort of became um, famous there as. He was uh, the art, art editor, and uh, and a regular contributor.
0: So, if he uh, begins at a newspaper, uh, what uh, his what will his assignments be at the start? Uh, I don't know whether he had to establish himself as a freelancer doing everything conceivable, or did he have a beat that he was quickly cultivating and making some making his name known with.
1: Um, he was kind of a jack of all trades in a lot of ways, but he became known largely as a sports illustrator. Um, back in the day, sports illustration was a pretty big deal, especially in the, at the American papers. It was rare for a Canadian paper to have someone who specialized in sports. He didn't only do do sports, but I think because of his uh, sports background, um, he was able to draw athletes especially well. He sort of knew how that, how that worked, how bodies moved. In that way, and he probably just, just because of his interest in sports as well, and his, his own background in sports, uh, he he came to specialize in that. That was sort of what he became known as, and what he was probably remembered for by those that do remember him.
0: Does sports illustration even survive today?
1: Not really. Um, if you ask any of the few sports cartoonists that survive, they will tell you it's it's pretty rough going at this point.
0: So, what was the what, what is what is the approach that he took? Um. I imagine there's room, there's a lot of license in sports that you wouldn't have in the news or opinion.
1: Maybe. Back then, I mean, he was doing actually a lot of the stuff he did in the news section. He did sort of a different version of it in the sports section. He was doing a lot of editorializing. Um, I mean, as you said earlier, it was about livening up the paper. So a lot of what he was doing was livening up. Um, but at the same time, he, but he was doing sports commentary as well. He was sort of a visual columnist in the sports section in a way. Or he did sort of a news of the week in sports, uh, column in the world, and he would, did, did various editorial cartoons that uh, spoke to what was going on in sports, be it either serious or lighthearted.
0: So, what could we expect? Uh, uh, lampooning of teams, uh, sports events in advance or after the fact? Uh, what would we see?
1: Well, um,. <clears throat> It's hard to say entirely. A lot of his world work is is lost. The Toronto Sunday World was not archived. So what I've seen is just kind of spotty stuff here and there. Um Yeah, there was certainly some lampooning. Um I mean there was there was one that was especially notable um during in wartime. There were there were some, some editorial cartoons about uh, sportsmen going off to war and how how that affected the leagues and the people that were left behind there was some of that kind of thing but there yeah there' always there'd be lampooning as well as there would be in the in the with, with politicians and that kind of thing you, you treated sports figures the same way editorial cartoonists would treat politicians I think mm.
0: How about competing sports how so well you would have teams that would oh yes uh, yes yes would uh, their their seasons would overlap,
1: yes as I think I mentioned in the piece there was a uh, he did a cartoon in the Star, I believe, where where you work. Um, I think hockey and hockey and rugby were overlapping, and yes, he he would do some lampooning of hockey not being very happy that rugby was still getting attention as the hockey season started up.
0: So I gather that uh, uh, that particular quote, which I've. I've actually read the piece here uh gives us some insight into how he worked and i was I was kind of delighted to see that he works he would often get ideas in a conversational situation where he'd be just chatting with someone there would be no idea and suddenly bingo there was something
1: yeah, according to the uh piece in the star, yeah, he just kind of walked in one day and uh when he was freelancing after after being at the world uh he would just kind of wander in and for work and start chatting up the sports editor and they'd kind of come up with an idea on the spot sometimes and he'd, he'd, he'd rush off, run with it and uh, show up the next day with a finished illustration. I think he was quite quick with his drawing.
0: Things sometimes still work that way actually. Yes. It's pretty good. So how did, it, how, th- how did things develop for him? He was at the world, established himself.
1: <laughs> he was at the world for 14 years and that really made his name. He, he became a pretty big voice at the world. The world wasn't the biggest selling paper, but it was a decent selling paper for a while. Um, and it became a really household name through, through world readers and became a bit of a celebrity that way.
0: So at, at some point, he had bigger ambitions, I gather.
1: Yeah, I'm not exactly sure why he left the world. The world ended up folding in the early 20s. Um, he left just before, whether he kind of saw it coming or just wanted to move on anyway. After 14 years of the world, he did uh, he did leave and um, start freelancing. He'd always said, or he'd said a few times, he wanted to be a fine artist and leave cartooning behind. He never really did that, but uh, he eventually started looking for work in uh, New York and moved there for a period of time. Uh, he did a lot of ghosting for some of the newspaper syndicates there for other artists. He worked. Is
0: that when you fill in when they're on vacation or something.
1: Yeah, or they just or they're drunk or don't show up or something or just uh, can't meet a deadline. Uh, require some help or just have become so big that someone can step in yes (laughs) yeah um he did some uh, animation work at the bray studios which was a pretty famous animation studio where they jr bray sort of co-invented uh celluloid animation at that studio he worked there for a little bit and mostly on uh, film strip projects from what i can tell which would probably be educational stuff um, and all this time he was pitching uh, strips to the syndicate, the, the, the newspaper strip had become a pretty big medium by that point, and he seemed to have wanted to get beyond just the, the gag gag panel stuff and move into a more narrative strip. And he pitched for several years in New York, and uh, finally in 1927, um, the, the Merit syndicate snatched up uh, a strip of his called Cash and Carry.
0: Okay, what was Cash and Carry about? Was it was it successful? It was his first stab at this.
1: It was his first stab that got picked up. He might have had other ones before that. I'm not sure. But uh, Cash and Carry was pretty typical of what was uh, of a lot of the strips that were out there at the time. It was kind of a working girl strip, given the era. There were sort of a flapper type working girls looking for jobs and careers and men. Um, one of them was very serious. One of them was a little flighty. So they. Uh, there were two sisters living together in the big city, had moved, moved to New York from their small town, and one got a job in a Wall Street office, one was trying to be a dancer, and there were some wacky hijinks, but it didn't really have the spark um, that it needed, and it, it got canceled with, uh, in about 11 months. Didn't so this was r- a pretty
0: tough uh, universe to break into.
1: I don't know how tough it was to get into. I assume so. I mean, there were a lot of quality classic strips back then. A lot of the big strips that we'd probably know, or some of them, ones that even continue today. If you look on what was on the page with them, like there was like Alley Oop and Bringing Up Father, and uh, you know, just a lot of strips that are really respected. Um, and yeah, he just yeah he just he, he
0: didn't find his groove.
1: He was obviously talented enough to make it and get picked up by a couple syndicates in his day, but yeah, the strips just didn't really have the spark they needed to continue there were there were other strips in that working girl flapper vein that were kind of did it better so yeah i didn't, readers didn't seem to uh to like that strip that much
0: i think the term you use in your story is that he was repatriated to canada by the male and empire
1: yes he did he did cash and carry he did, he did a second strip after called Marianne gay that got canceled even more quickly and then by about 1928 um he came back to Canada. I don't know the exact circumstances, but um, yeah, a cigarette ad that was running in the newspapers at the time had mentioned that that the Mail and Empire, uh, not yet the Globe and Mail, had uh, had brought him back to Canada uh, to do a contract there. And yeah, as I said in the piece, probably worked out well for everybody. He kind of had a had a way back without slouching back,
0: having having failed to set New York on fire. Yeah, the glory of being an expatriate, which mm-hmm. is a distinctive Canadian thing, right? Yes. So, but this would have been the beginning of the Great Depression. Yes. And I'm wondering how uh, affected he might have been, and how he would have obtained his gigs, his next gigs. Was he a staffer at the Mail and Empire?
1: I don't think he was ever on staff anywhere again after the World. I think he was probably. I think he did a contract for the Mail and Empire for a while. I think. Um, it was probably harder to, for illustrators to get staff positions at that time. A lot of the papers were merging. The Mail and Empire would, soon after that, merge with the Globe and become the Globe and Mail. I mean, you have to remember every city back then had several daily newspapers. It's not like today. So, um, they did begin to consolidate eventually. I think it was probably harder to find work. He, he was, he found work any way he could from the sounds of it. Okay, well,
0: that's what I want to ask you. Yeah. What, what kind of other kinds of work did he... So, I mean, develop, he, develop.
1: he always worked in newspapers and magazines his entire career. That that never ended. But not long after he came back from New York, sometime in the early 30s, he opened uh, Loose Goose Studios. And there he was doing a lot of advertising work. So he would do print advertising. And the main thing he seemed to have done was uh, promotional blotters, which we also call coasters today. And he would do these uh, just paper coasters for beer companies or just advertising blotters that would get mailed around with you know, the – like for various businesses around town that you would have on your desk as just a, a blotter to blot things on?
0: Yes, well, I think I uh, I saw it, there was an exhibit at that uh, uh, coffee bar on Parliament Street called Jet Fuel, in which some of these were blown up into posters. And they were quite fantastic. And, uh, and we always say about old publications that the ads are the best thing. And, and there was a, some wonderful images, for example, of a a couple of young boys and their dog looking into a hardware store window at a new CCM bicycle, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's whimsical, fun, and I bet it sold a few bicycles.
1: Probably he was. He seemed to be very successful with the butter business, so I think he was probably in high demand for advertising. I mean, he had so much advertising. I think he was probably in very high demand. Looks like he never said no to anyone. Yeah.
0: Uh, yes. Oh, well, I I think that's always a good policy when you're a freelancer, right? <laughs> if they'll pay.
1: Well, I, well, that's a good question because I don't know how many of them actually did. Pay. I mean, he had so many different size clients, like you said, from CCM, a lot of the beer companies, but he also did local, small dry cleaners and florists and that kind of thing as well. Um, he just seemed like a kind of guy. I mean, from everything I can tell, he's a very generous guy. So I think, well, I, I think there's, I think there's two reasons he didn't say no. I think one, he was just a very kind person who didn't want to say no to the little guy, even though he could probably command big money from the big guy. Um, and I think he probably didn't say no because he needed the money because I think he probably did a lot of stuff on Contra. And uh, maybe it wasn't, even though he was quite famous, maybe not as financially successful well, as, was as he could Well, I was going to ask
0: about that. How did he live? Where did he live in Toronto? What sort of uh, existence did he have? He got married at least once.
1: Uh, he, he was married twice. His first wife died in 1928 um, of, of breast cancer. He had uh, two, two, two children with her. Uh, and he, he married again in the 30s to his, his second wife, who he was married to for the rest of his life. Uh, they he lived throughout Toronto, which I don't doesn't seem like he ever owned a house. He moved a lot, and I think probably as rent got too high, he would look he would he would move somewhere else. He was up in up on on the St Clair area. He was at, in Summerhill. He was in Rosedale. He had a couple of yeah, there was notable a houses card, in Rosedale,
0: uh, twenty five Chestnut Park, which would have been a nice address in Rosedale.
1: Yeah, the two, those two Rosedale houses were very nice. One of them was the uh, Bootby House, which, was, uh, which is a famous house in Rosedale that is, is still there. They so had, had some nice addresses. But, this uh,
0: sounds like a society life.
1: His second wife, uh, uh, Ruth Kipling Frazier, was a, a society woman. Her, her father was W.A. A. Fraser, the famous poet. She was named after uh, Rudyard Kipling, the author. And she was a bit of a a society girl. And I think with his first wife, it sounds like he probably lived a very modest life. And I think uh, Kippy was a little more high society. And he seemed to enjoy that as his his fame was growing at around the time they were married. And I think that they might have lived beyond their means a little bit uh, with with the houses and with their going out and just their their general society ways, given that he did so much work for an organization like the Maple Leafs. I suspect. I don't know. I suspect he probably did a lot of that in exchange for season tickets. Mm-hmm. So even though it seems like he had this really big client, mm-hmm. probably wasn't making as much money
0: as he could have. So by the time of the second World War, World War, he would have his his career would have been well along. And uh, what what did he do during that era? Uh,
1: he he took part in in, in Everybody both. Everybody did of, something, right? Yeah, he took part in both World Wars. He didn't serve in the first World War. I'm not sure why exactly. I couldn't find out why. And I, I know he had. A heart condition later in life. It might have been something to do with that. Um, so uh, during during both wars, he did a lot of wartime uh, propaganda on the home front. He did ads for victory bonds and posters and covers of patriotic sheet music and that sort of thing. Uh, he did a lot more of that during the Second World War. Uh, both both in public, both pro- public and private stuff. He did a series of safety posters for the General Engineering. Um, company of Canada Munitions Plant in Scarborough. I did a big, big series of safety posters that were no one would have seen unless they worked in the plant. So again, you know, he probably never said no to anybody. He had, a, he had a friend that worked there who asked him to do these posters. Um, the biggest thing he probably did would have been his uh, stage show uh, with his with a machine he called his cartoonograph. Sounds modern. It was basically an overhead projector. Um, he'd been doing this for many years back, as far as the twenties at least. And it was basically, you know, just uh, uh, an overhead projector act that a lot of people did over the years in the vaudeville days, where he would just he would he would he would sit on stage, and you could just basically watch him draw on the screen in back of him via this overhead projector. Um, again, this is you know pre television, so this was still a pretty novel thing that people enjoyed going to see. And he would do he would do these shows in in massive theaters. He would do them in, for the Lions Club and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, during the war, he turned it into kind of a War Propaganda Act, and uh, he, he toured a lot with that, and did a lot of war-type stuff for Victory Bonds and just just general wartime propaganda.
0: Who would he have depicted?
1: Uh, uh, Hitler. Did he caricature mm-hmm. all the characters? He did. He did all. He did all the characters. War. He did your, your typical uh, wartime now racist okay. Jap character, and uh, he did the he would do Nazis. He would do Churchill. And do uh, all all the big you know the wartime caricatures of the day.
0: So by the end of the war, uh, would it be fair to say that he had evolved into one of the era's legends in terms of journalism and, and the kind of work that he did? Uh, his would his figure command uh, recognition or respect? Or just his
1: yes, his, legend. My, I don't know. I don't know if legend fits or not. I don't know how well, You people, have pictures if of if this thought.
0: silver-haired, yep. somewhat severe-looking gentleman, but he's sitting at whimsical uh, drawings on his his easel.
1: Yeah, I might have looked severe, but he was—he seemed to be a very jolly, happy guy. But uh, you know, I, I look severe too. So. <laughs> um, he was definitely a beloved figure in in the industry for sure. Uh, by that point, um, yeah, I mean, if there if there was a legend in newspaper illustration at that time, sure, um, he would have probably would have been right up there. But yes, he was a, definitely one of the most famous, most beloved. Figures in newspaper and advertising illustration at that point for
0: sure. So what I'm edging toward is the big question about what, what, what was the gentleman's masterpiece? Uh, if he did something big and dramatic that, uh, that kind of says, "I'm Lou Goose,
1: <laughs> and um, I matter." Yeah, uh, I don't know if it was if this is that's why he did it. I mean, is it, his masterpiece, everyone said when he died, was his mural for the um, Toronto Men's Press Club which was became later just the Toronto Press Club. Um, they moved into a new premises, uh, and he did he did this room-sized mural in the ladies' lounge. And it was a floor-to-ceiling mural that went up onto the ceilings and over doors and over molding and over vents. And it was just this gigantic, amazing room-sized mural. Um, if you go to the Tattle Creek uh, YouTube page, you can uh, see a, a very short film of it there. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think he set out to do it, saying this is the thing that's going to show I'm loose goose because I don't think he was that kind of guy. But um, planned or not, it was definitely uh, his masterpiece for sure. And there's no better place for his masterpiece than it was. A, it was a mural representing uh, the press over the course of time from the Stone Age to the present day. So if, if a guy like him, who's this beloved figure in the industry, is going to have a masterpiece. Um, I can think of no more fitting masterpiece for him to have. Just it, it worked out very well.
0: Well, as you depict them, uh, the reproductions are very sharp, and we have uh, a vis- We have in the press club a scene of people in the press club mobbing the bartender to buy tickets to the byline. Was it the Byline Bazaar or the Byline... Byline Ball. Ball,
1: which... I think was the, the, the Press Club's annual. Is this like the National Ball.
0: Newspaper Awards or something where the no, honors are dispensed to the... to the? I think, I think it was just a big party. Elites. It was just a big party. So that's why they would have mobbed it as opposed yes. to... Okay, so... I know
1: we uh, certainly don't mob the National Magazine Awards for, uh, for tickets.
0: Uh, if you're nominated, you definitely <laughs> want to go, but... Uh, Whatever ha- do do we do we know whatever happened to this room? Uh, with the, 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 for anybody who hasn't seen the article, that there are panels that cover the ceiling, the walls, virtually the radiators, each with a different theme. Uh, some of them include what was it? There's the the hard luck reporter. Mm-hmm. There's the slot man, which is an important figure who sort of says this story's ready to go. Mm-hmm. What happened to this drawing? Of oh, all oh, this huge. Complex of drawings.
1: Uh, well, the Press Club moved a lot. This was their premises on 99 Young Street uh, that they moved again in the next decade. And I don't know exactly what happened to it, I suspect. Given that, I mean, some of it was panel, some of it was wallpapered on. Um, it probably just got left behind uh, or destroyed. I mean, the, the, that building is now gone. The Press Club barely doesn't really exist. They, they claim to still exist, but it's pretty much gone. If anyone saved any parts of it, um, like a lot of his work, I think I mean he did he did various rooms over the years where he had rooms full of drawings over the years and I think when those rooms closed people just kind of took stuff and uh, his which is why his work is all just kind of scattered everywhere um, so I don't I don't think anything happened to it I think it's probably gone I've seen no sign of it anywhere maybe somebody has maybe somebody tore a piece off the wall before they. Mm-hmm. So you might come it across
0: it on eBay or something.
1: I, ha- I haven't seen it. I certainly look. But uh, what have you
0: found on eBay? Surely that's where everybody goes now. Although, unless we're researching big projects, that's the first place you go to. Yeah,
1: some stuff comes up on eBay.
0: Um, have the collectors discovered him before the public? Because you mentioned a price. Can you mention collectors? That price?
1: Don't the collectors don't collect his most of his work. The, the one thing collectors collect is he did a series of coasters of the nineteen thirty two Stanley Cup winning Maple Leafs and um, for whatever reason, collectors love these coasters, and they sell for thousands and thousands of dollars, which is funny because you can get some of his, his original artwork for a fraction of that, but uh, but these coasters, these printed coasters, the actual coasters themselves. Um, sort of
0: like baseball cards, the rare baseball yeah, cards, yeah. hockey cards.
1: Yeah, they're yeah. incredibly popular.
0: Okay, so then what was his signature? Did he have a signature? Like if you looked at a, a Lou Scoos cartoon and you mm-hmm. looked around on it,
1: Yes, well, as, uh, as you sort of alluded to at the beginning, there was a loose goose, which was his character. Um, it was not his character from the beginning, even though it's an incredibly obvious character for him to have. I think he came up with it in the twenties at some point, and uh, it was it was a goose. And he had a little rakish hat, and he just kind of it was a trademark. Showed up in a lot of a lot of his drawings, and uh, he'd had a little, as far as I know, unnamed owl character at the beginning that he would use as just sort of his mark. Uh, but the goose sort of took over eventually, and the, and the goose became incredibly popular. He became as popular as him, I think. So what, he was more. sort
0: of an observer, right, who would have little cracks to comment on something.
1: Usually, yeah, he would usually sort of have a little wise thing to say in the at the bottom corner of a panel sometimes.
0: Yeah, as a third party, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, I guess the cartoonist's role is to watch and comment and lampoon a little bit.
1: I mean, he's, he was kind of a, a stand-in for a blue, I guess.
0: Well... Uh, If you would like to read the full story, it is in the summer issue of Tattle Creek Magazine, which is on the newsstands. And uh, there's a lot of good color reproduction of the cartoons themselves, which we've tried to put in a few word pictures, but uh, you might want to see the originals. Um, You could probably also find somewhere the Globe and Mail's uh, excerpt, which was published uh, some weeks ago. Uh, It'll be on their website. And um, maybe it should have been in the Toronto Star, but uh, that's that's my (laughs) editorial here. (laughs) And uh, it's it's the the story is a wonderful, vivid account of uh, yet another great Canadian we don't know about. So thanks for filling us in, Conan. Thanks, Alfred, and thanks for filling in in the host chair today. You're welcome.